this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So when's the last time you read a book on selling your company? My guess is you've never read a book on selling your company. Why bother when the only books out there read like textbooks filled with acronyms and terms you've never heard of written by people who make it their job to make themselves look and sound smarter than you? Why bother? Well, the art of selling your business tries to do exactly the opposite. It features the stories of the founders I've listened to for the podcast. I've taken their best practices, their secret hacks, and bundled them into a storytelling format so that you can take away the key lessons, the action plan, the the field guide without sifting through the boring textbook that is most books on the topic of selling your company. You can get it at builttosell.com slash selling. So if you're a listener of this show, you know that a dependency on a single customer, employer, supplier, something we call the Switzerland structure, and it can make your company less attractive to a potential acquirer. Why? Because acquirers are allergic to risk and they view a dependency on a single customer, employer, supplier as something risky. Supplier in particular is one that is often misunderstood or overlooked by entrepreneurs. And we've seen this recently on the show. You know, Andrew Gazdecki, who I had on the show a couple of weeks ago, became too dependent on the iTunes store. Uh, A.D. Pinar, who was on maybe a couple months ago, became too dependent on the Shopify app store. And my next guest, Ben Leonard, became a little too dependent on Amazon. And to his credit, he worked really hard to build his off Amazon brand. He'll describe how he built the company really from scratch to 4 million pounds of turnover when he went to sell it to a private equity group building up a presence in the athletic space. Here to tell you the entire story and how he became less dependent on Amazon is Ben Leonard. Ben Leonard, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Tell us where in the world you are. I am in northeast Scotland, um, little fishing town or former fishing town south of Aberdeen. Okay, so, so how does a guy in a fishing town in the middle of rural Scotland build a fitness brand? This makes no sense to me. So tell me the story. Tell me about Beast sure. and how this um, all came about. Absolutely. So Aberdeen uh, is... Uh, affectionately known as the oil capital of Europe. And uh, everybody around here works in the oil and gas industry. And I was no exception. My background is ecology. I'm a, I'm a fully qualified whale and dolphin nerd. And my job was to tell uh, oil and gas engineers that no, you, you can't throw that chemical into the sea. And I enjoyed it. It was good. Uh, but in late 2015, early 2016, I got quite ill uh, for the third time with a heart problem. And I'm absolutely fine now. But at that time, uh, the doctors told me to take all of the drugs and for about nine months, stop all of my fitness hobbies. So no more CrossFit, boxing, running, throwing weights around, 
I mean, Ben, I, you know, for those of you listening, I'm looking at Ben on, on Zoom and you look about 25. <laughs> like, I'm like, how did you, how did you get a heart issue at yeah. such a young age? What's the deal? Sure. Uh, so at that time I was, I do look pretty young, which is great. I'll be the best looking guy in the care home um, when I'm in my eighties. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm 33 now. Uh, so I was in my late twenties and I got, uh, it's a condition called pericarditis, which mm. is reasonably common. You know, hospitals will have a few cases a year and, and particularly in, in guys in their twenties and thirties. And usually the first time you get it, they give you some anti-inflammatories, boom, it's done. But if you get it several times, it can become chronic and then really life-changing. And so by the third time, they're like, we need to nip this in the bud. So stop everything and take all of these drugs. And so I had to take that very seriously and I'm absolutely fine now. And, um, at that time, my, my then girlfriend, now wife was studying and was very busy and I needed something to keep me connected to those hobbies without actually doing them, occupy my mind and a, and a project effectively. And I was sadly tidying out my gym bag and looking at all the, the gym gear I wasn't using. And I thought, well, I could do a better job of this. And I had a, um, something came back to me a couple of years prior to this. I'd, I'd been training at CrossFit and at the end of the session, somebody said, oh yeah, we beasted it today. And I was like, beasted it, beast, beast, beast gear. That would be a cool name for a fitness brand. And, and I forgot all about it until this day, two years later ish, I was ill and uh, felt like I could do a better job of this fitness equipment. And so began this process of learning by doing um, to develop a brand of fitness equipment. My, my background. Can I just interrupt? I'd love to know when you looked at your gym bag and looked at the kit there, what was it that you thought you could do better? Was it the quality of the gear or the branding? A bit of both. So the branding was okay, um, but not particularly exciting. But the problem that I felt existed in this space was that high quality gear existed, but it was extortionately overpriced. So only available to um, wealthy people or elite athletes. And I felt like too often I was buying equipment which would break down too quickly. And there surely must be a way to develop high quality equipment that is not extortionate and is reasonably priced. And as I began to research this, I did discover that indeed the products that were on the market, the, the profits that were being made were uh, enormous. Um, and therefore there was a space for me to come in and sell something at a reasonable price for fitness enthusiasts like me, who was not extraordinarily wealthy, but was nonetheless passionate about my fitness hobbies and I deserved great equipment at a fair price. So I felt like there was a gap for me there. And, and, and as it turned out, there was. So, you know, what started as a hobby that may earn me some extra pocket money, give me something to do whilst I recovered, uh, turned out I was pretty good at it. I ended up quitting my job and uh, scaling that business. And, Fill uh, the blanks for me though, Ben, because like a lot of people have visions for brands, right? Like brand, brands are sexy, they're fun. They're like, I've got an idea for a cool, I mean, fitness brands, I mean, that uh, every 20 year old guy, I'm sure has sort of an idea, but in your case, you took it from this idea and you actually started the company. And I think mm. in my mind, I'd be like, how would you, like, it would be expensive to manufacture that stuff. How do you build a brand? Like, 
fill in the, the blanks. Like, how did, what were your first steps to going from the idea to actually have a commercial product that was being sold? Sure. So I, I, I couldn't, of course, I couldn't jump to having a whole suite of products, some of them very expensive in one fell swoop, obviously not possible. So I, I, I started with one product and then uh, built out from there. So the first product I was able to source pretty cheaply. It was a, it was a skipping rope uh, in the States. You'd, you'd call it a jump rope. Mm-hmm. And I was using that in my boxing training and in CrossFit and similar products already existed, but I was able to find a manufacturer and work with them uh, to improve on what already existed, to make some of the components more robust and um, working in ways that I felt were a little bit superior to what was out there. But nonetheless, it wasn't, um, the, the costs were not too prohibitive, right? So I was able to get these for, for se- just a few dollars per unit when I was- Where'd you sell them? Where? Mm. Uh, starting in the UK. And then- I mean, I, what channel? Sorry, what yeah, channels uh, did you use? So we, we started on uh, our own website and on Amazon. So uh, Amazon, uh, and then we used Amazon or I used Amazon to reach customers right across Europe. And then just before I sold, so, you know, three years later, uh, we were using Amazon in the Middle East and in Australia. And I was selling to customers on my own website, which I built on the the Shopify platform uh, to customers in the UK. And my plan at that... What purport, by the time you sold the company, um, just remind me, kind of turnover, we're, we're roughly sure, where we were. were doing about 4 million uh, British pounds. Got it. Um, and for those, if you want to do the US conversion, it's probably six or 7 million US dollars, depending on where the pound US dollar is floating at these something days. Something like that. Yeah. Okay. And so of that 4 million pound turnover, what proportion was going through Amazon versus through your own website? Yeah. The, the vast majority. We're talking 95%. And although it's going through Amazon. Yeah. Although it's, it's important to point out that we're not quite comparing apples and apples there because Amazon was reaching customers across Europe, the Middle East and Australia, whereas the website was only serving people in the UK. And my plan was to expand my website capabilities, but then came the time to sell. And so I never, never got to that. So you, you started with skipping ropes and then you did expand uh, the product line to include a number of different accessories in That's the right. fitness space. Uh, lip, my, my son does some like weightlifting. It makes, freaks me out to see him, but he has these like wristband things that he puts on his wrist to do like the trap bar. I don't know what that's for, but yeah. maybe it's just uh, lifting strap, it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like, so, so, um, I expanded the range. Really. It was, it was pretty straightforward. It was a question. So Partly I had the advantage of, I was the customer. Um, and then, it, so, so it made sense to simply uh, p- produce products which solve problems for that particular group of people and build a brand around that. So each time I, I developed a product, it was simply a case of, okay, so what makes sense to A, complement that product and B, solve related problems or pain points or challenges for that person? And I was, I was serving, I guess, three main people. I was serving people who were into strength training and powerlifting and that type of thing. People were into CrossFit and fitness and conditioning and just generally going to the gym and then boxing and combat sports. MMA and that kind of stuff. That type of thing, yeah. So 95% of your, your sales were coming from Amazon. Hmm. I've got so many questions about that yep. because Amazon... I mean, even the name Amazon, the everything store and the Amazon, like it's just, how do you, how do you set yourself apart? I'm assuming 
it's all about ranking in the Amazon search algorithm. Is that the main way you kind of pop on Amazon? That is important, but I that that's that that was important several years ago, and it's still important now. But it, it, I think it, it it's important to, to to think about this side of it. So when third party selling on Amazon became a thing, and for several years after, it was all about just selling stuff on Amazon, right? But when I started my brand, I didn't even know selling on Amazon was a thing. I was one of those people who thought when you bought it on Amazon, you were buying from Amazon. So right from the start, I was creating a brand that I was passionate about. And I believe the way to stand out on Amazon is, yes, you need to rank when you launch your products, but you need to build a brand, right? Build a brand which has off Amazon assets, your website, your YouTube channel, your TikTok, your Instagram, your Facebook, whatever it is, and use these to help you build an evangelical um, base of fans to whom will buy your products whenever you launch them, whether they buy them on your own website or Amazon. And yes, I was getting the vast majority of sales from Amazon, but Amazon provided me with a tremendous opportunity. And I was making efforts to, you know, um, switch the balance a bit to get, to drive some more sales off of Amazon. How did you build the brand? I mean, when I think of, uh, you know, fitness apparel, my mind goes everywhere from, um, is it Everlast? The, like the, the belts that the big weightlifters wear? Is that called Everlast? Is that the brand? Everlast is, is predominantly a boxing brand, but yeah, they've okay. branched out to stuff like weightlifting. Okay, so I think of everything from like Everlast to Peloton and Under yep. Armour and yep. you know, all, all these brands that are creating lifestyle brands in the fitness space. But they've, I mean, they've got hundreds of millions, if, if not billions of turnover. How did you possibly build a brand offline, off Amazon against those guys? So the great thing is that when you're a small business like me, uh, or, or like me, like my business, we have the benefit of, I, I, I like to call it micro agility. We're a little nimble speedboat and we can turn around very quickly. They're an enormous cruise ship and cruise ships are wonderful. They can take you to great places, but they take half a day to turn around. And that's why when you search on, for instance, Amazon, you'll find that if you search on Amazon for weightlifting straps, um, you'll find that uh, page one and page two is absolutely dominated by small businesses, sometimes just run by somebody on a laptop in their spare room, sometimes with a, with a team. Because these guys are agile and have learned how to build a brand and communicate directly with their customers in such a way that they build up a, a almost a cult-like following of evangelical fans, right? People buy from people. And until you're Nike, right, they're not really buying from your brand, they're buying from you. And so I positioned myself as an average Joe. You can go on the Beast Gear website now and you'll see that there's a page about how I am an averagely fit guy who's into fitness equipment. I love the video. It was like, you were so um, humble about it because like when I think of like, okay, a fitness brand, this guy's going to be like 250 and, you know, yeah. like completely buff. And then you're like, I'm just like an average Joe who's pretty fit, but I'm not, you know. Yeah, that's Arnold pretty much the idea. It's like, <laughs> we deserve great fitness equipment. Um, if you want to be the heavyweight uh, boxing champion of the world, great. If you're really overweight and you just want to run your first 5K, also great. Like you're all beasts. Come join my tribe you're welcome. Right. But that's um, also a sticky, like that's hard to thread the needle because, um, you know, appealing to the fat guy who wants to run his first 5k, doesn't that undermine your credibility as a brand with the guy who wants to be the heavyweight box champion of the world? Is, isn't, aren't those two things competitive with one another? 
maybe, but it worked, you know? And, and, and what I would say is that I think I, I spotted that the fitness industry was or is still very elitist and people were tired of being spoken down to and made to feel rubbish because they're not the strongest or the thinnest or the fastest. And I'm saying, if you are, that's fantastic. Welcome to our tribe. And if you're not, that's okay. Welcome to our tribe, right? So long as you're setting some goals and getting after them, then you are a beast. And don't but let in your own you mind, you're, you're obviously a savvy guy, smart marketer. In your own mind, did you know that being inclusive like that would appeal, like by saying, if you want to be the heavyweight lifter, your beast gear equipment will work for you. Did you know that in the back of your mind, like 99.9% .9 of people who buy beast gear stuff are not going to be the heavyweight champion of the world? And, yes. and by saying that you could be, it sort of legitimizes the gear, but at the same time opens it up for everybody who just wants to yep. get a little fitter. Yep. And it meant I was able to have uh, extraordinarily fit athletes, uh, you know, representing the, the brand and use uh, real people, customer generated, user generated content in my content to say, and here's the social proof of real people doing it too. So talk about the, the speedboat tactics. You mentioned you've got a website. Uh, I watched the YouTube video on your site. So I'm assuming you have a YouTube channel where yeah. you had, other, what, what, yeah. what, what did you put up on the YouTube channel? I mean, the YouTube channel was, was pretty straightforward. Demonstration videos of how to use the products. So sure. you're immediately you're busting objections. Somebody contacts you through your chat bot or whatever it is, or Instagram. Hey, I'm having trouble with this. Well, uh, happy here to answer any questions, but first here's the demo video, right? And you put a link to the demo video in the, in the PDF guide that gets sent through Amazon when they buy the product. So immediately you're, you're, you're busting problems before they even occur. So Got that was it. one so of the main website. things. YouTube. Got it. So you got a website, you got a YouTube video. What other tactics did you use to build this brand in a sort of nimble way? Instagram was huge. And um, there's a strategy which uh, I, 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 can, I can talk about, which uh, is, is straightforward, but hard work. And certainly to scale this, uh, the big guys struggle, but uh, it works like a charm when you're a bit smaller. And here it is. Um, some, especially if you've got a product or a brand, which is very Instagrammable, right? Um, so if you've got a food-based brand or, or an arts and crafts-based brand or a fitness-based brand that people like to post on, on something like Instagram, this will work great. So somebody posts your, themselves in the gym with your product. They've just done a deadlift personal best and they've tagged you and they've used your hashtag. You're going to like their post. You're going to comment on it and congratulate them on doing such a great job. Then you're going to look at their profile and take at least 30 seconds to scan through their profile and absorb some facts about them. So let's say it's Dave from London, right? Sure. Uh, now, we're, now you're going to private message him. So Dave from London has just posted on Instagram of himself with his new weightlifting belt from Beast Gear, and he's absolutely stoked about it. And then the brand personally contacts him on Instagram. And they say, hey, Dave, Saw you did a great job with your lifting. That's fantastic. And I saw your post from a couple of weeks back with your, with your squat personal best as well. That was amazing. I uh, see you're in London. That's my favorite city in the UK. Uh, you know, enjoy your training, right? The guy is blown away with the attention you just paid to him. You're going to maybe spend a few minutes just having a back and forth conversation, build up some reciprocity and some goodwill. Hit him with, well, you know, Dave, great talking to you. If you want uh, anything else, here's a voucher for 10% off. Head over to our website. The goodwill he now feels towards you is phenomenal. He has an enormous amount of reciprocity. Oh, by the way, Dave, uh, where did you get our product? Dave says, uh, well, it was actually on Amazon. Uh, well, Dave, 
if you've got a spare 30 seconds, you wouldn't mind just leaving, heading over to Amazon and leaving a review, would you? And he's just going to do it, right? Nike aren't doing that. Adidas are not doing that. Reebok are not doing that. And they got to a point where I couldn't do that on my own. So I outsourced it to a team. And Ben, in the early days, were you personally the one responding on Instagram saying, hey, congrats on the, on the squad? Yes. But of course, that became unsustainable. And so sure. I had to, had to outsource that. Good for you. That's, that's the kind of guerrilla marketing that, that uh, is folklore among entrepreneurs. I love it. Yeah, so, it, it okay. So, yeah, no, I, I don't doubt it at all. And, and it makes passionate fans for your product and, and obviously tons of Amazon. How important is, is, it, is Amazon review, are Amazon reviews to ranking in the search algorithm? Initially, so I'm going to kind of sit on the fence here. The, the search algorithm in and of itself, my understanding is reviews are relatively important, but not that important. What's more important is your, your actual, your add to cart frequency and then your conversion rate. But what influences your add to cart frequency and your conversion rate? Reviews. <laughs> so indirectly they are, right? Customers do care about reviews and ratings. Yes, they, they, are, they are really important. Got it. So I want to go back to building this brand. Again, Peloton, public company, billions of dollars in market cap now. They've got all the money that they could possibly want to build fitness apparel brands. How did you compete? So you had Instagram, you had YouTube for the videos on the demos, you had a website. What else did you do to build this brand like a speedboat? Chatbots were important. What's so, a chatbot? So chatbot? A chatbot is... Um, most people listening will be familiar with, with the Messenger app owned by Facebook, formerly known as Facebook Messenger. And a chatbot is essentially an automated uh, series of messages which you can interact with in Facebook Messenger. And it feels a little bit like you're talking to a human being. And so I would leverage it like this. Customer would purchase the product, whether they got it on my website or Amazon, doesn't matter. And inside of the product packaging, but also on the PDF that would be attached to an email when they bought it, would be... Uh, we call it an insert, but essentially a leaflet saying, uh, head over to this link and you'll get your user guide, including demonstration video and a voucher to get, you know, X percent off. So they would type in the link or click the button if they're on the PDF and boom, messenger would open. And it's great if it happens on your phone because it looks really good on your phone. And inside of here, we're immediately going to deliver on what we promised. So we're going to give them uh, a user guide, a link to the demonstration video. So we're immediately stopping any possible problems before they've started, which will help reduce any potential negative reviews, right? Then we're, we're offering people the opportunity to contact us directly there for any customer service issues. So immediately they have a point of contact. So they feel like this brand that I've just purchased from cares about me and has actively gone out of their way to give me an easy solution to get access to them. And because they're in our chatbot now, they're effectively, they've subscribed. So now when I want to launch new products, I can send a broadcast message to my chatbot subscribers to tell them all about it, whether that's on, whether I want to drive them back to Amazon or drive them to my website. And if I have an end of season sale, I can tell them all about it. Or I can just give them more value by telling them about the fantastic new article I wrote about how to improve, you know, X, Y, Z in their training. Love it. Did you set yourself up as a personal brand? Like, um, like, look at me, I'm really fit. Look at me, I'm just an average Joe and I can now bench press 250 pounds. Like, did you personally 
play the role of sort of the personal brand for Beast Gear? No, it was always about the Beast Gear brand, but it was just a case of if you want to look deeper, here I am and I'm an average Joe. So, so when you joined up, scenes. you know, the first couple of emails, I'd introduce the brand, I'd introduce myself, but it was never about um, some sort of story of how I was unfit and then I got fit. Um, it, it, I think people are tired of that type of thing. And I, I, I just wanted to be, uh, rather than talking about myself all the time, delivering value. So I would create articles and useful content that provided like helpful, free, engaging, compelling information, which helped people in their fitness goals. And in doing so, you're constantly reminding people about the brand, reminding them that you exist and you're here to solve problems for them and, and keeping the brand top of mind and building this goodwill. So when it is payday and it's time for them to get some new equipment, they're going to come back to you. Ben, I got to ask you, you're the dolphin guy. I'm the dolphin. <laughs> like, 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 and yet hearing you talk, it's clear you have an incredible um, sense of human behavior, uh, human buying behavior, human emotion. I would say you're probably off the charts in terms of emotional intelligence like, where does that come from? You're the dolphin guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm still the dolphin guy in an amateur kind of way, just not as a, as a professional. <laughs> no, um, but what did you do as a kid? What, what kind of environment did you grow up in? Yeah, like, what, um, you, know, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't know I had an entrepreneurial spark until I did this. And now, you know, I have entrepreneurial ideas coming out of my eyeballs. Um, almost so many that I, I can't keep up and they're, they're, they're kind of in a pipeline. But your mom and dad future. must have been empathetic. They must have yeah, been like they I, were really strong empathy people, no? I grew up in a really uh, loving, uh, happy household. And I was very lucky in that respect. Um, my parents uh, worked really hard for my brother and I, and, and all, we never went without. They came up to the Northeast of Scotland for the oil industry, but they both came from pretty modest backgrounds. My mom's parents, they ran a toy shop and a, a sports shop. And um, my, my, my dad's uh, dad uh, had, a, had some of his own businesses and then he passed away and, and his mom was the receptionist in a doctor's surgery. Um, and they, they worked super hard to get, to get to where they were. And then I was fortunate enough, you know, to, to be able to, you know, go to university uh, twice um, and get a good job. And then this happened and, and, and everything changed. What was your mom's like? I'm, I'm sure you got tons of advice from your mom over the years. We all kind of absorb it through osmosis. Do you remember one lesson from her that seems to stick out in your mind from your childhood? Wow. Uh, getting deep. Um, there, there's been quite a lot. Um, one from her, I guess, was, uh, was, was, I don't know why this sticks out because there's been so many, but this one was, was least said, soonest mended. So, you know, sometimes, uh, it, it's better just to, you know, some, maybe somebody has wronged you or whatever, or you're upset about a situation. And sometimes it's better to just be dignified and uh, say nothing and uh, show a bit of humility and uh, rise above it and kind of um, sh show who you are by just uh, by, by getting on with things in the right way and perhaps uh, responding in the right way rather than, uh, you know, maybe lashing out or I'll show you that type of type of thing. I love that. Least said, say it again. Least said, soonest mended. Beautiful. I don't know why that stands out. 
I think more with my mom, it's not so much things that she sort of said directly or said, you know, here's a lesson for life. It was more just the way she's always conducted herself just in being a, a great person. I think she was really good at raising my brother and I because she grew up with two brothers. So she was really good with boys. She took none of your BS. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah precisely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love it. Well, obviously, uh, the, again, the, the, the intuition you have around human behavior is clearly spells out in spades and, and it contributed to the success of your company. You mentioned um, there was a offline before we hit record, there was a, sort of a story around the IP associated yeah. with Beast Gear. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So, um, so a few, a few products in, right? The, the brand is ticking over nicely. I've had an idea for a new product. A product already exists in the market at this time to, to, serve the, to solve the same problem, to, serve, to, to function to solve the same problem, but it could, it could be improved on. And so I developed a better product to, to, ser solve the same, uh, to serve the same function, but which distinctly looks and appears different. Okay, are you, are you intentionally not saying the name of the product because you get in legal trouble? Uh, I don't know if I would get in legal trouble, but I just don't, don't okay. want to cross so it's, a, it's a fitness uh, brand, it's a fitness, it's product, a fitness right? product. Yeah, and, and, you saw and, and, and you, you can, you're like, you can do better. I can do a better job of this and it's ridiculously overpriced. So I, I designed another one, a better one, and had my design uh, uh, protected in a registered design by a really, really, really good intellectual property attorney. And my product uh, gets developed, starts selling, does, does tremendously well, overtakes the existing product because A, it's better, and B, I'm not, rip, not ripping people off. The existing product is owned, owned by an enormous organization who try to sue me. They send me letters in German now, the reason they could do this is because I was selling in Germany. So they could come at me in whatever marketplace they wanted. And they wanted to make my Sprechen life... Deutschmann. <laughs> exactly, right? They wanted to make my life as difficult as possible. So they come to me through German lawyers. It's a Canadian organization. And um, they basically say, stop selling, or we're going to come down on you like a ton of bricks. And they wrote to Amazon and had Amazon suspend my product. And unfortunately, Amazon tends to shoot first and ask questions later. So my attorneys took their time and over a period of two to three weeks, we did our homework and we came to realize that uh, my product was not infringing on theirs. Uh, and my product's protection was sufficient. And not only that, but after we, we figured out that, that their product had been developed by a, an entrepreneur like me and then acquired by this enormous organization. And it had inherited the original patent drawings, which were pretty crude. It turned out they didn't actually their own patent didn't actually protect their own product. <laughs> so my lawyers politely said, um, go away. Uh, otherwise, we're going to actually go to court and have your patent um, effectively, you know, uh, illegitimized, right? Which would open up the market to everybody. And they would be, they really wouldn't like that. So we what basically is the said, difference, Ben, what is it before you tell, I just need to ask you, what is the difference between a patent and a registered design? Okay, so caveat, I'm not an intellectual property attorney, but... Yeah. Um, I understand uh, it, it is mostly a European versus North American thing. Okay. Uh, and and uh, that is the difference. So in the, Nor in, in, in the US and Canada, you have uh, uh, function patents, essentially, and design patents. And one pertains to function and one pertains to design. In Europe, we have 
uh, uh, function patterns, and we have registered designs, which protect the design. So anyway, they went away. Um, I got my product reinstated on Amazon. I asked them to reimburse me for the lost sales that I had incurred during the time my product was suspended. They went quiet and never came back to me. But my product uh, continued to go strong and became the leader in that space, and I won. Um, it was an incredibly stressful time, but you know, the moral of the story is get your intellectual property uh, uh, defensive strategy in place early and use professionals. I see people all the time saying, oh, I want to do it myself. It'll only cost me a few hundred pounds or dollars. Don't. What did Get it cost it you? What did it cost you to 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 create the register design, like to, in in legal fees, and then what did it cost you in legal fees to defend it? Okay, to create the design probably cost me in the region of a thousand pounds, so uh, whatever that is in dollars, fifteen hundred, two thousand, or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, to defend the whole thing, ten to fifteen thousand pounds. Got um, it. Whereas uh, if I had had nothing or had done it all myself, what I would have done myself would have been insufficient. And if I had nothing, well, then I would have been in big trouble, right? And I, I see it all the time in the Facebook groups and the forums of people with trademarks in particular. People say, how much will it cost me to do a trademark? And people will write in saying, um, oh, don't worry, you can do it yourself uh, for a few hundred pounds or a few hundred dollars. It's like, well, you, yes, you can. But what you get will be a trademark but it won't be a broad protection of everything you need. And I'm all for bootstrapping your business and saving money. When it comes to intellectual property, you've got to get it done by an expert. You, you just have to. Yeah, well said indeed and agreed 100%. So one of the questions that I've had percolating in my mind is, is how did you finance this business? Because I, as, as I understand this kind of business, you're having it manufactured overseas. Yep. You've got to pay for the container pretty early, usually when it shows up at the port. And then you kind of sell it through and then you get a check from Amazon, you know, months later. This sounds a very, very, very expensive uh, to finance. How did you do it? Cash flow can be really tough in this type of business. By the way, just confirm that was the model, like the container, you buy the container. Pretty much, um, more or less. So as the business scaled and my relationship with the suppliers improved, I even went out to China. I manufactured mostly in China and the Middle East. I even went to China to meet some of them. I'd meet them at trade shows in, trade shows in Europe pre-COVID. And um, uh, you know, I was able to negotiate better terms. But more or less what you said is true. I was fortunate in that when I started doing this, Amazon used to pay out on my account every day. Wow. So these days people wait a fortnight. And that fortnight is two weeks. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and, and after, even after they started doing that, my account was grandfathered into the daily payments. So I was, I was getting daily disbursements from Amazon, which was extremely helpful. Um, but yes, cash flow can be a big issue. And one of the things that I was very grateful for was that after, because Amazon is genius, right? They have access to your account. They can see how well you're performing. And therefore, they're able to offer you a loan that they know you can pay back and that you're going to use it to scale your business and therefore scale their business. So they started to offer me loans. I'd log into my Amazon account. It says, you've qualified for this loan. I would take the loan at an extremely low interest rate. I was able to pay it back and bingo, they, they offer you another loan. So that helped me to scale. So all of those things um, you know, came together in the perfect storm of uh, helpfulness, if you like, which, which was great. But, but I took very get, little out of the business. That, that's, that's important to know. How did you get the first ship finance? Did you borrow money? Did you... Did you- did you raise the, the first money? order I placed with my supplier was 500 
skipping ropes or jump ropes. And it, it cost me something like two and a half thousand bucks. Um, and I think I paid for about half of it and I borrowed about half from my dad. I was very fortunate that, that they did that for me. And then during the first year, I suppose, of the business, I think I, I borrowed around 10, 10, 10 grand off my parents in total. And I recognize not everyone is fortunate enough to be able to do that. But I think if, if, if they hadn't lent me that, uh, you know, I'd proven the concept and I would have borrowed that from somewhere or probably more, in, in fact. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, uh, it really took off. And, and with the benefit of Amazon loans, I was able to scale the business and, and eventually got it to a point where I, I was able to start paying myself and quit my job. So the, the first, the first, you know, 12 months, you know, the real grind, that can be tough. Um, did you raise any external money other than the small amounts from your parents? Did you raise any external money before? Nope. It was all, all, all organic growth, I guess, if you like. Um, to put it in context... This is the most fantastic sort of entrepreneurial story. It's a sexy industry. It's just awesome. I love there's it. There's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of serendipity, I guess, and things coming coming together. Uh, I don't want to say luck because I, you know, I worked very hard at it. But and and so that that it's not you can't just put things down to luck. But I want to give you the context, right, of how this grew. The first order I placed with my supplier was for uh, 500 skipping ropes. Um, and then I, I grew out, you know, multiple products, but just before I sold the business, the last order I placed with the supplier for that same skipping rope was 250,000 units. Wow. So this, the, the rapid growth in three and a bit years was, uh, for some, when I had no background in business and, and started it as a hobby and I had absolutely no idea, uh, where this was going to take me. And I mean, just tremendously grateful that, uh, that it happened that way. How much of your business was skipping ropes on a percentage basis? Ooh, now bear in mind, I brought out three models of skipping rope, mm-hmm. right? And actually have just helped the new owners launch another one. So it, it was a, a large proportion. And by the end, it was, it was something like 40%, um, maybe more like 35 the reason for that was um, we became very well known for the initial flagship product, which was called the Beast Rope, and then the Beast Rope Pro and the Beast Rope Elite, and we just launched the Beast Rope Fire. And it simply made sense that um, people were searching for a skipping rope. And if we were the ones to offer a range, we were positioned as the skipping rope experts. And it didn't really matter which one they bought as long as they bought from us. Did you ever so- consider just doing skipping ropes? No, because there came a point at which I, because I needed to have something else to sell my customers. So somebody would buy a skipping rope and then either they were buying a skipping rope because they were interested in CrossFit, in which case I had plenty of other stuff to sell them, or they'd bought a skipping rope because they were interested in boxing, in which case I also needed some other products to sell them. So I didn't want to just do skipping ropes because I would struggle to sell them very much else. And and in in any case, I didn't think that was particularly exciting. Let's get into the sale because I could talk to you about about this business forever. I think it's so awesome. Let's get into the sales. So you're, you, you topped out or you're, I think around 4 million pounds, UK pounds turnover. Um, did you have any sense of what the company might be worth as you were growing it? Did you, had you heard sort of multiples in the, in the, in the industry? It wasn't until late 2018 that I really started to give this some thought. And then I made the decision. I remember when I made the decision. I was at a trade show in February 2019 with a friend who 
who wasn't in the fitness space. It was a fitness trade show, but he was looking at getting into it. And we were having a conversation and he convinced me, you really need to start thinking about this because uh, so much of the business is tied up in Amazon that if anything were to happen and somebody in Amazon was to press the big red button, you do hear horror stories, even though I was squeaky clean and playing all the rules, uh, uh, abiding by all the rules. Um, it was very reliant on one sales channel, albeit across multiple Amazon marketplaces, you know, internationally. Sure. And I was at a point in my life where uh, my wife was pregnant. Um, we wanted to move house, still young. Uh, still very passionate about the brand, but it was growing at such a rate and I was running around like a headless chicken. I had a choice. I could scale the team and uh, put put significant amounts of work into that, or I could take some money off the table and make my family financially secure and move on to the next project. And in some ways it was a head versus heart thing, but it just made sense for me and my family at that time. Yeah, yeah. What did you think it was worth That was hard to say because multiples in e-commerce, particularly, you know, this is 2019, um, were, were and still are lower than a, a traditional multiple, right? So whereas you might expect a, a 5, 6, or 7x multiple. Multiple um, of EBITDA. Or, of EBITDA or sales yep. discretionary earnings. Um, we were talking more in the region of three. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so after I became to understand, you know, just from some general research that this was the kind of multiple that I might expect, um, whilst on the one hand, I was a, a little disappointed that, that that's just what it was in e-commerce, uh, that still represented a significant sum of money for me and my family. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I decided to start making moves, this was early 2019, towards selling the business. I'm assuming when you say three times... Uh profit for an e-commerce company. I'm assuming that's an e-commerce company that sells the majority of its products through Amazon. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So the more you sell through a marketplace like Amazon, uh, the, the, this is not quite a hard and fast rule, but your, your multiple tends to be a little lower. Whereas if you are selling more through your own uh, direct-to-consumer website, for instance, uh, or even you know, in combination with, with uh, say, Brooks and Mortar, you uh, would expect a higher multiple. Um, in, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's simply just because the dependency on Amazon is, yep. is dragging uh, down the valuation. Exactly. And also because, you know, when this first kicked off, right, this whole idea of buying and selling e-commerce businesses, which I find this, they'll find this quite remarkable. The internet existed for, has existed for, you know, decades now. And we've been buying and selling products online for a long, long time. And yet up until just a few years ago, uh, p- people believe that if it didn't have a door and a roof, you know, you couldn't buy or sell it. Um, and uh, the idea of, of, of uh, you know, people looked on e-commerce, purely e-commerce businesses with disdain as, um, as not a grown-up, you know, big boy business, um, <laughs> which is, which is uh, simply not the case. And multiples now are, are higher than they were a couple of years ago. We're, Even for Amazon-dependent companies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what was, you know, whereas three was pretty good, now um, we're, 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 you know, four is more normal. And even even higher, uh, five and a half can be can be can be achieved these days. Got it. So, so you're early 2019. Your buddy's like, "Hey, man, you're super dependent on Amazon. You built a great business. You could make yourself financially independent by just selling it." Like, yep. What are you doing? So he convinces you. What's the next step? 
Yeah, so at this point, so for anyone listening who, who is in the e-commerce space, you may be aware that there are now uh, uh, venture capitalist groups who've raised a whole bunch of money to buy businesses. At this point, th th that ecosystem didn't exist. I had no idea who would potentially buy my business. Uh, so I contacted a broker. Uh, this broker uh, I contacted because a friend of mine had, a different friend had sold a couple of businesses through it to, to, to private individuals. And it, uh, my understanding at that point in time was I would use this broker and they would find either a private individual or a competitor or another company who, for whatever reason, would be interested in buying my business. As it turned out, um, they, it was actually one of the, the big, uh, uh, we'll call them an aggregator, big aggregators in the e-commerce space who bought my business. It was, and I'm allowed to say this, it's public domain. It was Thrasio, who were the most famous. They, formed, they actually formed in September 2018 and they made me the offer in September 2019, just a year after they'd formed. And Thrasio is a private equity group that's rolling up these yep. e-commerce brands. It, precisely. So they're rolling up e-commerce brands. So they'll roll up a bunch of sports brands into a sporting kind of umbrella and they'll roll up a bunch of garden brands and pet brands, and then they'll sell them on for a much, much higher multiple down the line. And they've raised something like close to $3 billion, with a B dollars. It's to make these acquisitions. So how did you get connected to Thrasio? It was the broker. Um, so the broker, um, they, they connected me with Thrasio. So, you know, these days, everyone in e-commerce has heard of Thrasio. So this is, you know, mid-2019. Nobody knew who they were. So I'm, I'm still grateful to the broker for doing that. And they, they introduced me to Thrasio. And uh, Thrasio made me an offer. And after a little back and forth, uh, the deal was agreed. How did, let's fill in some of the, <laughs> some of the blanks there. So you meet Thrasio. Uh, what was their initial reaction? They loved it. They loved it. Um, I, I was what was fortunate. it they loved? They loved the brand. And uh, I, 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 I recall on the call uh, with, the, with, with one of the co-founders to begin with, he said, uh, he, he, the logo of Beast Gear is this kind of angry looking gorilla. He said, I love the badass logo. Um, and they loved what they referred to as, uh, and it's a term I like to use a lot, as the moat around the business. So I'd created a suite of products. So if any one product went down for some supply chain reason, I had plenty of other products in there. I had plenty of reviews and I built up all these off Amazon assets that we spoke about earlier, the social media, the YouTube, the chatbots. And I'd built up so much goodwill and this sort of uh, evangelical following of the brand that they would buy anything that I launched. Hmm. And they saw the upside of taking it to the US. So I was only selling in Europe and Australia and the Middle East. They saw the huge opportunity of going to the US. Why didn't you do that yourself? I was going to when... I had this conversation with my buddy and I decided that, you know what, I want, it, the time is right to start thinking about selling. And I don't, I think it's important that I don't think it's good to max out growth and then sell. I think you need to leave something for the buyer, at least some meat on the bone. And that, you know, that gives them, you know, they want to accelerate the growth even further and eventually exit themselves. And they need to see some, something there to, to, to want to take it on. Got it. What was your reaction to, how, how did the conversation of price come up? Was it oral? Like, was it over the phone? Was it in person or is it on paper? So the, I, I believe that the, the offer came through on, on paper. Uh, had well, you or, talked uh, before uh, that though? Like, uh, had you guys? Yeah. Had, had, so, sort of... so the, the broker had, had valued the business uh, at, at around about 3.3 uh, or something like that multiple. And I, I was certain that the uh, the, the potential buyer uh, would would come through with with a lower offer because uh, 
that's just kind of you know how it works. It's like buying, buying, buying a house. And indeed they did, but they, they considering that, you know, just to, to, to think about the, the, the environment, the marketplace for buying and selling e-commerce businesses in 2019, what they came back with, which was more or less a tiny bit under a fraction under three was not in that environment, a, a derisory low ball offer. And after a little back and forth on, on deal structure and things like what we included, um, uh, in terms of stock, uh, how much was up front and how much was on the earnout, um, we arrived at a deal pretty quickly. What proportion was on an earnout? Ooh, uh, it was uh, the majority was up front. Uh, I've got some numbers in front of me. Just a sec. Uh, earnout was something like forty percent, and that might sound pretty high, and it, it is considering the. Uh, again, considering where we are now in this environment, that is high, right? We're seeing a much higher percentage upfront now in these deals, more like 80, 90%. Um, but the earnout, the, the, the um, what should we call them? The numbers, that the, the targets that needed to be hit during the earnout were very realistic and attainable. And in what fact, were we're going to hit all to? of them. Were they, they tied, were tied to, to top line Yeah, top line. Yeah. And, and, um, the business is, is, is going to easily hit all of them. We're in, this, we're in the second year of year now. Got it. And, and with year now, is it three-year or not? It was two. Two years. And again, so, so now we're seeing usually earn out some more like one year now. Got it. And so, so the two-year earn out tied to top-line sales numbers, mm-hmm. is that right? That's correct, yeah. Okay. How did you get comfortable? You know, we hear stories about earn outs where where the, you know, the, the, the acquiring company doesn't give the budget to the entrepreneur to hit their earnout because they missed some sort of goal or whatever. How did, did you, did you get, were you concerned that, or how did you ensure that you were going to have the yeah. support of Thrasio to, to meet those numbers? Yeah. So it is a funny one. I have to, first of all, I have to get my head around this idea that they're calling it an earnout and yet I'm not earning it. Like they're doing it and I have to have my faith in that they're going to do a good job of it. Why didn't you? Weren't you still running the company at the time, during the or not? No, nope, nope, no, nope, wow. not at all. So I was I was giving them some advice and helping to launch product. I actually negotiated a side deal where I would launch develop products for them and take a commission on those. Not not that wasn't part of the, the share purchase wow. agreement. I negotiated that on the side. Um, wow, I was one of the first people to do that in this space actually, because um, I still had a ton of products in my pipeline, right? Which is why I knew we were going to hit the targets because we were going to launch all these new products. And also because I knew that, that there was tons, tons of growth with what I just launched as well. But the first thing I had to just get around my head was, well, look, how much money am I taking out of the business? You know, how much am I paying myself? How much are they offering me upfront? Divide that number by that number. And that's how many years it's going to take me to earn that money. No, complete no brainer, right? They, they paid me well over a million dollars upfront. And if I wanted, I could, reti- could have retired on that if I had invested smartly. And um, I haven't retired. That'd be very boring. But nonetheless, right, it was for me and my family at that time, it just made sense. Right. And it it wasn't a case of, um, oh, but if I just hang on, I could get so much more like that. That that wasn't it. It was just it, it was just the right thing for us. Uh, it sounds like it. people are listening, though, and saying, wait a minute, he, he left 40% on the table. 
a lot of people, I mean, 40% earnout is not, is not unusual at all. There's lots of people who do that, but they're still running the company. <laughs> you, you left and let yep. them run the company. How yep. did you get your head around that? Like what, what you must've put some guardrails in place to ensure yeah, that yeah. they were going to make yes. best efforts. So I, I have had a significant role in continue in, in some, in, in, in some of the strategy, particularly the, the off Amazon stuff on the website. So the, the split is no longer 95, five, for instance, the website has continued to grow after because I I've had input purely, uh, you know, advising basically I've some people, they kind of, they, they have their transition period, which is typically they'll, they'll provide like uh, some email support and they'll do some calls for the first several months after the deal is done. Then that's it. They walk away. Uh, I have chosen to, to check in much more frequently in order to advise on the strategy for the brand. Um, the team that I, the remote team that I put in place on the social media and that type of thing have continued to run with all the kind of micro agility things that I created, right? And in fact, they're kind of now pushing those, them into their other brands. And therefore I was confident that those, those cogs would keep turning, right? Without me. And therefore I was confident that this earnout period would, would go well. And indeed it has. Got it. And did they stagger the payments uh, over, like, did you get a tranche in, after year one and another tranche at year two, or is it all back-ended at the end of year two? It was uh, uh, year one and year two. So got, uh, got the upfront and then got, uh, so the, the upfront, you know, uh, portion of the of the share purchase, they bought the, the, the entity, right? The limited company. Mm -hmm. uh, then there were, and then, you know, there was the cash in the bank and the stock. And then uh, year one payment and year, and year two, uh, we're halfway through. Got it. Got it. If you, if you could do the whole thing again, not building necessarily the brand, but selling the company, what would you do differently? Selling. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't have timed it so that I was uh, backpacking around Italy with my wife and six month old baby whilst I was uh, having calls with a potential buyer uh, for <laughs> starters. Um, I would have... Uh, I probably would have negotiated harder on deal structure. Um, like what? What would you have changed? Uh, more upfront. Uh, probably would have, uh, yeah, more upfront. Would have pushed a bit harder on the multiple, I suspect. Um, but having said that, is that even a fair comment considering the environment that this market was in a couple of years ago? This has moved so fast, right? This space mm. is moving at an incredible pace. I don't want to be too hard on myself for that. Um, I might have, uh, I used a broker, as, as we mentioned, and they, they, something happened during the process uh, where uh, my accountant and I uh, caught a, a calculation error that they messed up and they undervalued the business uh, by a significant amount. And after we caught this mistake, um, we, or I negotiated down their commission. I think I ought to have negotiated harder on that because uh, when we, we, after identifying that mistake, which, which would have cost me, uh, over, over a million, right. Hmm. Um, the commission they were taking after me identifying this mistake was, was higher than still higher than they would have taken before, even after I negotiated them down on the commission. So I ought to have gone harder on that. Hmm. What advice would you have for another entrepreneur looking to find a great broker or great M&A professional? Like what, what would, if you were having a beer at a pub with someone and said, I really need to find someone 
someone good who's going to take good care of me? What would you, what advice yeah. would you give? So deal with somebody who's got experience on all sides. Um, there are a lot of sort of uh, brokers in the space who are great, um, but they haven't actually got the lived experience of being an e-commerce seller themselves. They haven't poured their heart, blood, sweat, and tears into it. And they also are lacking the experience on the accountancy side. So deal with somebody who's got experience on all sides of the equation. They've done deals, they've sold businesses, they understand the accounts, but they've also been in the trenches as an e-commerce seller. Um, yeah, I, presumably, I'm, I'm assuming you mean for folks listening to this who have an e-commerce brand. I'm extrapolating that to say, sure. deal with someone who understands the industry you're in. Yes, exactly. You know, in your Do case, that. it was e-commerce, but in another case, it might yeah, be If you're, if you're listening and you're not in e-commerce, deal with a broker who has... Uh, real life experience of the industry that you are in and can speak to that uh, from a position of, you know, uh, authority on that. And um, that was, you know, one of the things that, that led, led me to where I am now. Uh, after the sale of the business, um, my accountant, Allison and I, uh, she played a key role in getting the business uh, built to sell, if you like. <laughs> and we put our heads together and uh, realized we could, we could bring something else to this space and offer a little bit more um, and we, we created e-com brokers to do just that. That's so cool. So where can people find out more about you? If, is there sure. a website or are you a LinkedIn guy? Yeah, uh, what's I'm on the LinkedIn. Best? Okay. Look for Ben Leonard on LinkedIn. Uh, I love to chat. I'm on Instagram and all the social media channels. My handle is Ben Leonard pro. Um, my own website is Ben And, uh, my brokerage website is ecombrokers.co.uk. It's a UK domain, but we're, uh, we're working all over the world. Ben, I appreciate you taking the time. This is a great story and congratulations. Thanks so much for having me, John. Cheers. Hey, we're going to start a new feature here at Built to Sell Radio where you can send me your questions about building to sell. It doesn't matter whether it's about the process of building a valuable company to recurring revenue models all the way to harvesting the value you've created. If you've got a question, record an audio file. You can use something like QuickTime or any other device you record audio on and send it to John at builttosell.com. I am looking forward to hearing from you and answering your questions. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling, where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.